AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for December 9th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by John Hogboom. Welcome, John. Uh, good to be here again. Matt Kaiser. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well, thanks, Matt. <laughs> and we have a special guest today, Rick Howard. Welcome. Thank you, thanks uh, for having me here. You're a CSO for Palo Alto Networks. Yep. And uh, tell us a little bit, I mean, being the CSO for a security company, yeah. <laughs> special challenge there, right? Yeah, very special challenge. You know, uh, we have about 800 uh, security engineers in the company, and all of them think they know more about security than I do, and, and they do, okay? Uh, but uh, they're also the worst practitioners on the planet, so it's a really unique challenge to be there. Uh, my role is uh, oversight of the cybersecurity uh, protection program at Palo Alto. Um, I'm also in charge of our threat intel program. Uh, and I get to go around the world doing stuff like this, is talking about security, which is the best part of the job. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And uh, we're going to actually start a little bit of a discussion about threat intelligence great. here. And um, I'll, I'll just hand it over to you. Tell us a little bit about how you approach it. I've been with uh, the company about a year now, all right? And uh, one of the jobs I get to do is travel around the world, talk to security people like yourselves. Uh, I've talked to a bunch of them this last year, and what I've seen with this last year talking to those folks and uh, in the last couple of years is a transition uh, that advanced organizations are doing, right? They are transitioning their um, tactical incident response teams into strategic intelligence teams. And it doesn't mean we're getting rid of incident response, it just means that we're raising their sights a little bit. You know, when I started doing, I've been doing this for a long time, 25 years or so. And when we did incident response, it was really whack-a-mole. Okay, it was, you know, gee, go stop that breach and then wait for the next one to happen. But we didn't understand the context of the attack. We didn't know what the adversary was trying to do. Uh, and so we really had no idea what the next one's going to be and whether or not that person had managed to skirt off to the left and right of the initial attack. So what many advanced organizations are doing is trying to get better at the intelligence piece where we can actually understand what the, uh, what the adversary is doing. Is it a criminal? Is it a spy? Is it a hacktivist? Is it just some ankle biters trying to cause mischief? And it would be nice to know that so you can adjust your response to whatever is happening. So there's lots of uh, advanced organizations doing this. Uh, the Department of Defense in the U.S. have been doing it for about 15 years. Uh, you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, the financial sector has been doing that for a long time, since right. probably 2005 or so. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the models that we should all be looking at to, to uh, 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 do better at this. And many people are now starting to form their own threat intelligence teams. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons I got hired to go to work for Palo Alto Networks is to build our first threat intelligence team. We had all those researchers, and they were really researching one of those, some of the smartest people on the planet about how the adversary works mm -hmm. and how you should protect against it. But they didn't have time to kind of cull it into something that it, you could call an intelligence product that leadership could use to make decisions on how to defend the enterprise. All right, right. All right so uh, we formed our unit uh, back in April of this year. It's called Unit 42. We can talk about why we call it that in a second. Um, and really they've been focused on collecting all the intelligence that we gather internally through our own systems, that we get through our customer systems because they allow us to see it, and being able to understand the adversary at a deep level and then tell the public about it. 
This is not a revenue generating scheme for us. It's really about PR and thought leadership and right. about pushing the idea that threat intelligence is something that we should all have in our enterprise. Mm -hmm. Oh, very good. So, you know, one of the things I think kind of hopefully related here, I've always kind of felt that the attacks have been sort of evolutionary and there's very little revolution unless you're not paying attention. Right. That is, if you're, that. The, if you're, if it's the first time you're experiencing being a victim of a particular attack, it looks like something completely new and you know revolutionary. But if you're tracking how the attack methods are being developed, who the groups are, what their motivations might be, it gives you an opportunity to really be prepared for it. It doesn't become such a surprise. So what do you see as the challenges in doing this? Well, I mean, I want to jump on what you said we were talking about before we started filming, right? It is really, you know, if, if uh, like in my company, if a cyber criminal attacks somebody and steals their credit card information, um, that's hard for them. You know, it sucks to be them, okay? But uh, it's not really material to the business. In our business, though, and at Palo Alto Networks, you know, we make hardware and software, and the designs for that stuff is intellectual property. If that ever gets right. out, we our value goes down. So we're more worried about cyber uh, espionage than we are about cyber crime. You know, we don't have credit card information or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you are seeing adversaries come into your network, if you know that this is a cyber criminal, you'll deal with it. But maybe it's not as important as it is if you see a cyber spy come into yeah, your absolutely. network. Right? So you can't do everything. You need to manage priorities, consider what you're, yeah. how you might be a target and where you really need to fortify your protections. Right. Uh, you mentioned not you don't have to deal with credit cards. Other organizations sure. do have to deal with credit cards. It's obviously a big target recently. Relatively sophisticated attack activities going on there as well. Well, it's funny, you guys, I'll be interested to hear what you guys say about this too. It, uh, it seems to be a trend that when somebody big gets hit, they say, oh gee, it was advanced, and so we have no way to <laughs> stop it. We couldn't have been expected to right. stop it. Right. And I, I fundamentally disagree with that, all right? Uh, um, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that. Well, that's funny. Um, I think it was actually just recently, you know, the Sony hack is still in the news. Um, and I was reading Twitter talking about, you know, you've got companies that are bringing in experts, and every time a major breach happens, they say, oh, this was, you could not have done a thing to stop this. And I think it was uh, the Gruck. He was one of the, the guys. Gruck, yeah, yeah. And he, he <laughs> tweeted, it's whoever the company was is selling indulgences, which is absolution Ooh. of sin. Which is, he's saying, what a great way. you a pay great this word. company, and they say, don't worry, there's nothing you could have done. So. Well, you know what I've noticed talking to all the chief security officers and CISOs and IT security directors this last year is our heart's in the right spot, but we, we never finish configuring our devices to, be, to do what we wanted them to do when we bought right. them in the first place. Yep. They're always in some almost there but not quite there state, right? You know, we sell, uh, we sell next generation firewalls. When a customer buys one of our things, they are transitioning from their old stateful inspection firewall to this next generation firewall. And they've spent you know, a sizable amount of money to forklift a new piece of equipment in there. But many, many of them never get to the next generation firewall pieces that they bought it for. Or they're in some hybrid form where they're doing staple inspection and the other. Uh, and it's like, wow, it's hard to see that, right? Uh, so what, we're, what I think is an issue is that we need to get back to basic blocking and tackling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, threat prevention is a thing that we could be good at. Make sure that the stuff that you bought is configured the way you thought it should be configured in the first place, right. and then collect metrics to make sure 
okay, that they're doing what you thought it should do in the first yeah. place. Very good point. You know, yeah. ultimately, one of my little, I have many kind of silly sayings, but one of them is that in security, details matter. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, it's the details that matter. And, you know, I think that one of the most difficult phases of a project is really the life cycle management. That is, developing a business case, if you really need it, that's pretty straightforward. Getting the resources in place, pretty straightforward. Actually implementing it, pretty straightforward. But once you get sort of that, threshold of we're done, you know, as soon as that gets reported to management, the next thing you know, you're pushed on to the next project. That's exactly what's <laughs> happening. That's exactly what I'm seeing, right? And right. So what I've been advising people that I've been talking to is you have to plan when you do the initial project plan is you need, you need to put bodies in front of that to configure it correctly the first time right. and then plan for it in out year so there's people there doing it, you know, every year after that. Absolutely. Yeah. So back on the threat intelligence sharing, what are the fundamental challenges? How can we overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. Okay, I know you guys uh, see a lot of traffic, but how do you get the stuff that you see uh, out to people that can use it? It's, it's, it's tough. We were talking before we filmed that you and I can share you know, spreadsheets or whatever, but you st as soon as you start to bring in more people, the scale right. problem is hard, mm -hmm. right? There are organizations out there that are really so much better at it than everybody else that they're the model that we look to. Uh, the financial sector, ISAC, is one of them, and uh, the defense industrial base, their, their acronyms are always weird, but the DSIE, you guys know what this DSIE. is? DSIE. Oh, yeah, yes. right. Uh, and they're so much better at it than everybody else that uh, we should all be looking at what they've done. Mm -hmm. but the, uh, and we all know that we need it. We've been talking about information sharing for security stuff for at least 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we, we lip service it, but uh, uh, the big hurdle, I think, is standards. Right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. there's two things that we have to get out of information sharing. We have to get the information uh, in a way that machines can read it, mm -hmm. right? So that I don't have to put a human on it to, in, to ingest whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? And you also have to have it so humans can read it so that we understand and how to explain to management what the heck is going on. Context matters. Context matters, yeah, right? Because right. when you do get an event that fires, you need to be able to go back and look at, understand what does this mean? Yeah, what does it mean? Is, right. you know, how right. do I interpret this you know, event that just triggered based on some indicator that was mm -hmm. in there? You know, and that is the hallmark of intelligence too, right, by the way, right? Because when you're doing intelligence, you have different customers, right? Uh, in my company, I have uh, the, the engineers need intelligence. The marketing guys need intelligence, and they may be the same subject, but it is different, definitely different context about how you right. tell them that. Right. It's the same way when sharing threat information. Machines need it differently. Humans need it differently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I, you know, the, the standards part is what's been holding everything up. Last time I checked, there's some 40 different threat information sharing standards out there. There's commercial versions. Commercial vendors have them. Uh, there's open source versions. There's kind of mm -hmm. hybrids out there. Um, but I think two things happened in 2014 that have really pushed us to the tipping point, uh, where we're going to adopt one standard and move towards it. Um, that is the sticks and taxi format mm -hmm. that right. riders develop. There are two things that have happened are that the FSISAC, the financial sector ISAC, started about a year ago and said, we're going to use sticks and taxi as our framework. Mm -hmm. And they got it and they built their, their instance of it. Right. Like I said, sticks and taxi, you guys know this, it's a framework, not a, not a software application. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a way to do a bunch of things. They decided they were going to use sticks and taxi to get that done and built their own instance of it. Mm -hmm. It was so popular that they have a commercial version of it going out in a, uh, that spun out as a regular right. instance. What, I forget what it's called. Uh, yeah, I, do, yeah. I, I heard the name, but I can't remember it now. Yeah, you know, it's, pretty, it's, it's fun though, it's a fun name, right? <laughs> right yeah. um, 
And so the so that's good. That the, the you know the best one of the best information sharers on the planet are rolling out sticks and taxis. So that's an indicator that that's coming down the path. Mm -hmm. The next one is uh, Microsoft. Okay, in their Maps program. Right. Uh, I forget what Maps stands for, but it's how Microsoft advises uh, security vendors about what the next Patch Tuesday is going to be, so they can be ready when Patch Tuesday hits. Mm -hmm. They decided to use Sticks and Taxi to do that this year. Hasn't rolled out yet, I don't think, but it's close. So those two big elephants in the room saying, we're using Sticks and Taxi, I think that's the tipping point. We're all gonna go mm -hmm. towards that. Um, at Palo Alto Networks, my boss is so big on information sharing that he decided that uh, we're gonna get this together with security vendors. So he, formed the, he helped form the Cyber Threat Alliance which is us and Fortinet, Symantec, and McAfee. Mm -hmm. All right, it's really the first time security vendors have agreed to share threat information with each other. All right, so uh, that started this spring. Uh, that's a big deal that has never happened before. Right. Um, I'm on the committee on those that helps run this thing, and we've decided to use Sticks and Taxi as our framework too. So I think that hurdle of what standard you use to do it uh, is finally going to be uh, overcome. Yeah, very good. Yeah. It's all good inertia in the right direction. Yeah, you mentioned it's, it's a framework, so yeah. that there's still a lot of, we'll call flexibility within yeah. <laughs> that framework that needs to be worked through. And you mentioned standards. I think you're absolutely right. Standards are very important to this, but in the security space, I think that also becomes sort of a, an Achilles heel. That is, to the extent that the adversaries can understand your constraints for sharing information, it gives them perhaps opportunities to do some things. So I agree a, with that, but I we think always... it ultimately becomes our challenge. I'm yeah, yeah. Not discounting the need, but ultimately we have to be uh, aware of the challenges that are ahead of us. Well, I, I love that ahead. you said that because you know security people are you know are uh, how should I say this cynical and uh, uh, utopian based. Okay, <laughs> how can you be both at the same time? I don't know. You know, but you know, oh, it's not going to be perfect, so we shouldn't use it. Okay, so I, uh, I, I yeah, I, we should just start knocking those down and just keep going, and we'll uh, let the adversary catch up with us. If you can only, if you can only monitor two percent of the network, it is in the towel of, of network monitoring. I think it's stated if you can only monitor three percent of the network. That's 3%, 3% that you would have some understanding exactly. of exactly. if you weren't monitoring it. You know, <laughs> so it's uh, absolutely a good point. Very good discussion. Let's uh, go ahead and move over to John here right. and uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the cynical side of things, perhaps. <laughs> right. So we were talking a little bit about cybercrime and you know the, uh, the stealing of um, uh, login credentials and uh, credit card information. Citadel uh, is a... Um, piece of malware. It's an offshoot of Zeus. We've talked about Zeus before. It's a cybercrime toolkit. A lot of people, you know, kick up their botnets. Um, a lot of different actors running that toolkit. Citadel's an offshoot of Zeus. And um, one of the new kinds of trends that we're starting to pick up, or actually IBM uh, put out some information about a new piece of Citadel um, malware where they've updated the configuration to look for uh, passwords to start keylogging when you go to access your password safe or your you know password managers. Great. So that's you know before it would just keylog for the various websites that you would go to and get those as you hit them. But now they can go in get the password for your password manager and have access to all of your login IDs and passwords for all your systems. So man in the middle to the password safe product I'm using or whatever product I'm using, it's looking at your communication with that. Is that what's going yes, on? Yes, right. They've targeted specific ones right now. Now I yes. guess there are some ways you can deal with this to some extent, right? 
Well, I, you know, I'm not really aware of many good ways <laughs> other than don't get infected. Don't get I think the there internet. are at least some products that provide two-factor authentication. Oh, right. I think it's using a third party to provide that two-factor authentication, but it at least gives you an opportunity to uh, provide a little stronger enforcement for access to the password manager. And uh, But no, but you're saying it's the man in the middle, right? So as the as you're on the web page and it says, uh, here's the user ID and password for this website, it's actually looking at the communication with the password manager on the Well, device. actually, from my understanding, it's when you go to fire up PasswordSafe or KeePass, actually, right now, they're only targeting three ones. PasswordSafe, KeePass, which are the two big ones. It's basically a Windows application. You run, it asks you for your master password that you type in. As soon as you run that program, the keylogger kicks in and starts recording keystrokes as you put your master password in uh, to so password safe and key pass. So it's trying to get the keys to the kingdom. In a right, sense. it's trying to get the master key to all of your other passwords. And from that point, you know, potentially, depending on what they deploy on there, they could just very easily go access all of your passwords sure. within mm -hmm. your password safe. Because if your machine's compromised uh, in the first place to have a key logger on there, they could put anything they want, like a rat, and to start interactively working with yeah. the stuff on your machine. Pull your password safe file off, you know, they could just copy that to someplace else. Mm -hmm. And if they know your master password now, they could just open it up and look at all of them offline, right. you know, on their own. But the difference I think is that this is happening on your machine. So if you update your password safe, I'm assuming it'll go ahead and recapture all the passwords in your password safe? Because if they were to pull a copy to their own local box, they'd have that one snapshot of your passwords, right? Right, right, right. right. But if you have you know, well, I, I guess that's what you're saying. If you change your master password. Well, if you, if you change your master password or you start adding new accounts to your password safe. Maybe today I sign up for another bank account. I put it into my password safe. I was infected yesterday. I'm still infected today. Right. And they get my new password as well. As opposed to the other model yeah, that I'm pulling the file off. Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Right. Well, so I think this really kind of brings back that whole basic notion that you can't trust any system that has been compromised. I mean, fundamentally, right. you can't add software to create add trust to a system that, that is inherently not trusted. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, really, the best protection here is don't let your machine get infected, right? Yes. Well, thanks. <laughs> that's pretty helpful. Two-factor authentication <laughs> is a good, you know, assistive right. uh, protection against uh, this kind of thing. Because even it, most websites that you have, if you have to log in, you might have a password that you have to put in that's in your password safe. But then they might ask you for some out-of-band type of mm -hmm. authentication. They'll send you a PIN or a PIN code and uh, text message or whatever. Um, and that helps prevent, you know, a lot of other, that'll knock down 99% of the ability right. to, to get into your, you know, sensitive systems. So for banking, I would recommend if you have a bank Absolutely. and they support two-factor authentication, enable it for yourself. Um, but uh, try not to get infected in the first place. Citadel's a tricky one. It's very hard to detect as well. Um, it's very evasive. So antivirus is not particularly good at finding it, especially new versions. They find, mm -hmm. you know, it's always that lag cycle of two weeks behind probably or something. And then they know about all the versions that are two weeks old. But by that point, game over, you've had your stuff probably compromised for two weeks yeah. now. now. You know, the uh, I think we've suggested on the show before that if you're going to do sensitive things like banking or shopping online, that you like maybe boot into a, a live Linux CD or thumb drive to mm -hmm. separate it. So does this does this maybe suggest that when you start using your password safe, you should be doing the exact same thing? I mean, I realize that there are there are passwords in your password safe, and there are passwords in your password safe. Right. You know, if you want to log into a game online, that's not a big deal. You don't care too much about what happens to that. Maybe you don't have to do that. But if you've got the keys to the kingdom and something that's you know 
sensitive, maybe you want to put everything into that one compartment, that one you know, booted operating system. Just a thought. We were talking about this before we started filming. That, you know, that's too. That's way too hard for most people. Okay? Yes. <laughs> right. Right. My mother-in-law, who I'm very proud of, okay, has an iPad. She's 80 years old. She's on it every day. I get notes from her. All the stuff I'm supposed to be doing. Okay. Right. <laughs> but I'm, she's not going to do two-factor authentication. She doesn't yeah. understand it, and right. it's just we have engineered it so it's too hard to do to be safe. Okay. And mm -hmm. we need better solutions. I don't know what they are. Yeah. Right. Good point. Which. I guess there's another discussion. We were talking about this earlier yep. about. <laughs> no, we should have just filmed that discussion. <laughs> yeah, a discussion about the, uh, you know, we, it always comes down to humans being the weak factor, but, you know, the feeling is really the technology is where we're failing here. We need to really kind of push this forward. I really think so. I, you know, I, I speak at a lot of different places, and um, I always, my icebreaker question when I get on stage is how many people in the room can send an encrypted email message right now? And it's very small. The percentage of yeah. people that could do it or had the ability to do it right then is really small. How many people could figure it out? Hands a little bit more go up, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not ready. They can't do it right now, right? right, right? right. And, and it shouldn't be that way. It should be really easy to be safe mm -hmm. and secure and private on the network, and it's just not. Yeah, absolutely true. Well, people have been saying for years, we're not, all we're going to need is our fingerprint or an eye scan mm -hmm. as a password. We'll be able to get rid of passwords, but we're not getting, you know, it yeah. really, we not haven't evolved to that point yet. Not anytime yeah. soon. Probably a little too far on the tangent. Maybe we can discuss it some other time. I'm not a big fan of the biometrics. And it's not yeah. for the reasons that most people have, uh, tend to say. But. So let's go to Matt now. And uh, Matt, I guess uh, we talked about not letting your machine get infected. Mm -hmm. But that kind of presumes it's not infected when you get it. Very good <laughs> right. point. So um, this article that I read is a, by Lookout. And they're talking about malware that they're calling uh, Death Ring, which mm. uh, it's a cheeky little name. And I had to look it up. Apparently, it's also a reference to a college drinking game. Okay. Somehow, I missed that one in my college years. Uh, but this is a case of phones being pre-infected at the factory, somewhere within the supply chain. Now, these are all kind of third-tier phone providers. I honestly had to look all of them up. Oh, really? Uh, I had not heard of a single one of them. And apparently, some fake versions of Samsung Galaxy devices as well. The malware is pre-installed into the system directory of these phones, and apparently this makes it almost impossible for the regular user to remove. Right. So I think it masquerades as a ringtone app, mm. but it has the ability that it can pull down extra functionality either using SMS or WAP and add to its feature set. So, so it's a dropper? Is that what it's, it's a, it sounds like a dropper or at least a modular bit of malware. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they can add features as, they, as the <laughs> creators want. Um, what I found most interesting about this one is that it has mechanisms for evading certain amounts of you know, if someone was looking for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is particularly designed to evade detection in the factory. So wow. it only kicks itself off after the fifth time it's been rebooted mm. or after a certain number of the user, you know, powering it on, powering, you know, going to sleep, coming back, going to sleep, coming back. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're testing a phone in the, in the factory, there's probably a gamut of tests that you run. You boot mm -hmm. it up once, maybe you boot it up again to make sure it still works. You run your tests and you certify it as, okay, this phone is good. Mm. So if you, you know, if this thing waits five times, it's going to probably evade all of that analysis. That sounds like somebody really kind of knows the manufacturing yeah. process. And that's and very, very possible. If they have an in into the, in the manufacturing process, they probably know not only how to get the malware on the phone, but, you know, what checks are going to be made on these phones mm -hmm. before they get packaged and shipped and out. And perhaps even which manufacturers are going to overlook it. That's true. I mean, these are, these are relatively unknown manufacturers. 
I, what I find in security is that the companies that have been in the field the longest or have the most resources are also the ones who have learned the lessons the hard way mm -hmm. and have implemented these sorts of checks and security features. You know, it's, it's, you start off as a, a small company, somebody does something terrible, you know, abuses your free service or mm -hmm. infects your hardware. They learn over time. I think these guys are relatively new players in the field. So do we know if it starts command and control right away? Does the does it reach right out and says I'm I'm alive now? Does it automatically do that or? I'm not sure about that yeah. actually. It wasn't clear from the article. Yeah. yeah, this is a circumstance where if you have the uh, if it if if it allows the push, if the app allows a push, it may not even have a command and control that's uh, that would be that's recognizable. Too, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it, it it could be basically kicked alive in a sense. Mm. Uh, so long as the app's been started, I presume that the, uh, the app, or maybe it starts as a part of the regular boot process in itself. But, so I, I guess, you know, we will often recommend staying to the mainstream app markets. So now it kind of suggests you want to stay with your mainstream hardware provider. Too, hardware though. providers yeah, as well. That's an interesting thought, you know. Hmm. All right. Because it did appears like, go ahead. I was going to say, did they mention what the motivation of the malware is, what the functionality that they might like, why would somebody be so interested to infect all these phones? Are they trying to, you know, get certain types of information or just run a botnet? You no, know, I think it did say something about that. Um, they say it might use SMS content to fish um, contact information or things that you're putting into the phone. But it sounds like they're wording it more as a, it might do this, it might do that. Right, right. right. Because no it's clear modular. motivation just yet. Well, it's a base, right? So whoever did it, whoever the adversary was... Mm -hmm. uh, Who's ever buying that phone in, would you say, China and somewhere else? Where China and pr primarily China and Africa. Africa, mm -hmm. right. So wh and whoever gets those phones are now someone they can use to do whatever. Right, right? and so that's what I wonder if yeah. there's some motivation on the geography of that or not. It, it may have been fundamentally a test. Uh, you know, oftentimes, this, yeah. oftentimes some of these, uh, and we talked about the evolution versus revolution. Mm -hmm. I think this may be one of those uh, evolutionary activities where they may have chosen a, sort of a maybe a more innocuous market to start out mm -hmm. and to see how successful it is and they're perhaps uh, looking to you know tune this thing further mm -hmm. and uh, we need to be looking for it in other wow. other forms and shapes mm -hmm. uh, but it may not have actually had purpose associated with it I mean I would have expected or thought that if it did have purpose that would have been the discovery path that is associated right. with some sort of fraud or some type of other activity and then maybe digging deeper find this uh, but well, it looks like it's help. targeting consumers too, right? And not, not uh, enterprises, not commercial enterprises, right? So uh, that's an interesting little uh, angle on it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a possibility, yeah. absolutely. So you know, we're we're trying to learn a little bit here, and uh, the learning process is something that never ends in the security space. In fact, it's very important to kind of keep up to date from a technology standpoint. Mm -hmm. The activities are taking place, and, and so Rick, you had some suggestions on uh, reading materials. Yeah, uh, so I've been working on this project for a couple of years and like you said, what I love about this job is that it changes all the time, so you're right. never bored. What I hate about this job is it changes, changes all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> you're, you're never up to date, right? So uh, um, so a couple of years ago, I was, uh, I'm a big reader of cybersecurity books mm -hmm. and uh, I was being smug and uh, how, how, uh, superior downstairs in my basement looking at my collection. And I was looking, oh, look at that book. I've read all these and I must be very smart. And I realized I didn't remember what any of those books said. I remember right. the title, right? And <laughs> maybe the author, but I didn't really get, I didn't understand any of it. I'm so, glad you're not telling one. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I think a lot of us are like that, right? Uh, so I decided as a personal uh, project for myself that I would start rereading some of them 
and write down little notes to myself so I at least remember what the heck that book was. I knew it was good. I just didn't remember what it was. Uh, those turned into book reviews, right? And I started publishing them at various places. And I managed to get a collection of about 25 of these things. And this idea came to mind that, you know, maybe there's a set of books in our industry that all of us should have read by now, okay? Mm -hmm. That they're evergreen, okay? That they, you know, there's lots of technical books and we're always reading the latest technical book. But, you know, my NT book on cybersecurity is probably not up to date right now, okay? Right. So uh, we, we're looking for books that should be on the shelf. And so it's kind of a cybersecurity canon, right? Mm -hmm. Something that we could all say, this is what we all should have read or our, our intellectual evolution is not complete, okay? So I presented this idea at RSA uh, this year at the RSA conference and it was well received. Uh, and then Palo Alto uh, decided to sponsor it. So we're gonna make it official that we are developing the first cybersecurity list of canon books. Uh, so what does that mean? It means we modeled it after the Baseball Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. right? So we here are some candidate books that are, we're going to show them. I think we're showing some of them now, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they are candidates. They're not in the canon yet, right? They're just books that we are considering that should be in the canon. Uh, we formed a committee. We got a DARPA researcher. We got a Facebook researcher. We got a couple of CISOs. And one of the authors on the list, Parmi Olson, who wrote We Are Anonymous. They're part of the, this year's committee. All right, and they helped us develop the infrastructure for getting this done, all right? Mm -hmm. So we put all these lists up on the uh, Palo Alto site. There's book reviews accompanying them. Uh, if you want to go, if, you're, if you don't want to read the book, you can read the book review. And if you don't want to read the book review, there's an executive summary for, you know, three or four lines. You can get the gist of what all the right. book is. Uh, when I first started doing this, I thought, you know, mostly it was going to be technical books. Uh, and it turned out not to be true because of the reason that they kind of go out of date a little bit, right? Uh, so I turned to nonfiction books, books about cybercrime and cyber espionage and cyber warfare. So those, those, you'll find those on the list. Uh, and then I said, you know, uh, we're really trying to show the old timers um, all everything they've read, but also we're trying to bring in new people into the, uh, into the field, into the mm -hmm. community, right? And maybe we can hook them if they give them a tell a good story where the cyber is good, where the right. cybersecurity right. tech is good, right? So there are a lot of novels on this list where the story is fantastic and the, the technical stuff is accurate and could be done in the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the kind of the three categories of books on the list. All right, very good. So do you have a favorite? Oh yeah, I absolutely <laughs> have a favorite here. Uh, the best hacker novel of all time is Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, oh. right now. I want to warn you, that's a thousand pages that you're going to have to get through, okay? <laughs> and it is dense, okay? He likes to write about everything. Uh, he's, got, he's interested in lots of technical stuff, and it's all in there. But the story is fantastic. It's mm. two-generational story, World War II and dot-com, mm -hmm. 90s, same family but different folks. Uh, in World War II, we're talking about uh, code-breaking in Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the future world, we're talking about new businesses and hiding data in offshore locations, like kind of trying to keep your enterprises secure, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a uh, World War II and hacking and crypto analysis and uh, uh, three love stories with, you know, here are all these smart cyber geeks and, that are yeah. breaking German and Japanese codes, but you introduce a girl to them, they don't even know how to talk anymore, right? <laughs> all right so, I mean, it's a They're really, really all, fantastic right? story. So the yeah. warning is, you're not going to get through this on a weekend, but it's worth the read to get through that whole thing. I'll That's my favorite novel. Yeah. yeah, very good. You know, uh, I, I just happen to be, you know, Wires and Outliers is one that kind of uh, I relate to. Bruce Snyder is always a provocative, you know, in, in, his, in his blogs and, and, 
and topics always has something that uh, I find to be uh, thought-provoking. And uh, you, you mentioned Evergreen yeah. being one of the criteria yeah. associated with this. And, you know, he's uh, the only case I'm aware of where he actually takes it back to tribal behaviors. We talked about threat intelligence and sharing up mm -hmm. and the challenges associated with that. And he gets right down into that we're basically programmed to only trust a certain size community because of our, you know, sort of our tribal behaviors that date back hundreds of thousands of years. That's really true. Yeah. And so that was where I kind of, I happened to have been reading it right around when we were in this, you know, jumping into this phase of uh, threat intelligence and how we would share things and how to go about it and dealing with the scaling issues associated with it. And when I read that, it was like, aha. So if we can overcome these aspects of things, we have an op an opportunity to succeed with this. And I do have one. Ultimately, of his it comes down the, to people. It does come down to people and how we all handle and secure our enterprises, right? Um, I do have one of his books on the list. Secrets and Lies was his mm -hmm. first one, right? right. It's the one when I first noticed who he was, um, and I, so I went back. Everybody said you need secrets and lies on this book, so I went back and read it real fast, and it's fantastic. Lots of good stuff, evergreen. The only thing I thought that he got wrong, you know, this is back in the early 2000s when he wrote this. Uh, he was really talking about network security by itself right. and not really about anything on the host. Hmm. And I think what we've learned uh, in the last 10 years is when you talk about kill chain analysis, going back to threat intelligence, mm -hmm. right? Uh, network's important, but also the endpoint is important. Absolutely. And you have, to, you have to kind of combine them. He wasn't really wrong. He just didn't really consider it as that important. He considered it as separate. And You know, I think the, uh, I think, the tendency has been that there are people that are familiar with the hosts, and there are people that are familiar with the networking. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's a it's the collection of the two that ultimately, you know, defines the, yeah. the security. It goes together, status. right? It, it has to together. go together, absolutely. So I want to make a I want to make a plug here before we go too far on this. Uh, there's about 25 books on this list. There's probably, I guess, in the over 100 that need to be on the list. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, if you're interested in this project, all we're calling it the Cybersecurity Canon Project. Go to the website, and if you have a book that's not on the list that you feel passionate about, uh, go ahead and submit your your uh, suggestion there. You have to write a book review to get in. You have to put some skin in the game to get in there because mm -hmm. we're just not going to make a list of books. We want you to kind of work for it a little bit. Uh, we're going to announce the winners of this year's Cybersecurity Canon winner uh, awards uh, in April of 2015 in Las Vegas. Sounds good. Yep. Well, thank you. Another fresh perspective. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. <laughs> and uh, let's go back. To John, right? We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, sure the uh, new a slightly, the uh, new slant slightly on transition <laughs> here, but um, right. So uh, there's been a new. So we talked about Poodle before on previous shows. Poodle is this pat, uh, padding oracle on down downgraded legacy encryption, which basically means there's a vulnerability in the SSL protocol where if you there's different versions of SSL. So you have SSL version three. Well, there was a version two, but nobody really uses that. Version three, there's TLS 1.0, 1.1, 1.2. Um, if you can kind of step in the middle of a conversation and force somebody to use SSL v3, there's some strategies you can use by repeatedly trying tactics against an SSL server mm -hmm. to kind of brute force the plain text out. It takes a lot of uh, reiterative uh, attacks on it. It's not just a one and done kind of thing to get the plain text back. You can basically get a bite at a time and mm -hmm. work your way through, so to speak. In any event, so they, they discovered that there's this vulnerability, uh, this brute force kind of attack that you can use against SSL v3. This is just kind of an update on this to say that some researchers have discovered that uh, the TLS protocol, which is 
the next one above SSL v3. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the, what most people use nowadays. In some implementations of TLS, they've discovered that it has a similar vulnerability, but only in certain vendors' products, depending on right. how it's been implemented. So uh, the three that we're aware of right now is in older versions of Mozilla's network security services, which is mm -hmm. what kind of handles in your Firefox browser to do your encryption, but older versions. So you, if you're updated, you probably don't have an issue there. But current versions of F5 network load balancers and A10 network load balancers, those are two different companies. Mm -hmm. um, load balancer, if you're not familiar with a load balancer, I would think most people are, but usually they front websites or other types of services where you've got a, like a cloud of web servers behind it and you go into um, uh, you know, an array of load balancers that will distribute the traffic across them. And they'll handle that whole SSL session because uh, a lot of them act as SSL accelerators, and then mm -hmm. they just kind of talk to the machines on the back end. Right. So um, F5 and A10 have discovered that, okay, you're right, there is an issue here, um, and they have patches out. So if you have those devices in your network, you should probably just take a look and, and, and maybe uh, put the patches on. Right. That being said, I think I said this before, the Poodle vulnerability is not trivial to exploit. Uh, you know, we've talked about like Heartbleed, which was really easy to exploit. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. Shell Shock was pretty easy to do as well, as long as you kind of knew how to get at it uh, from a remote exploitation path. Both mm -hmm. of those are really easy to do. Well, uh, the consequences are different as well. Right. There's, um, uh, and the, the consequence of a Poodle attack is that you get information from that session whereas a consequence in Heartbleed could be that you get the private keys for the SSL encryption that allow you to effectively decrypt anything on yeah. that server prior and later. If yeah, you, and have you keep poking a Heartbleed vulnerable, you'll get all kinds of right. data dumped back to you of logins and passwords of other people's right. sessions. And Shellshock, you just could take Shell over shock the server. Shellshock, you just take entirely. over the machine. So right. Completely different consequences. Vulnerability, yeah, yeah, yeah. The consequences. Well, I'm confused though, because your picture obviously means that that's a really important, uh, <laughs> that's a scary looking poodle. That is one nasty looking poodle. <laughs> All these scary, angry uh, poodles came out uh, as a result of this naming convention that came out there. But uh, long story short, it's probably something you do want to take care of. It's yeah. a vulnerability both on the client side and the server side. A lot of people are pushing to have all the, you know, in enterprises to disable SSL v3 in the browsers so that you can't be forced to step down mm. to that, you know, SSL v3. Um, but even still, this is a different one. It's the TLS 1.0 with these load balancers. So if you have them in your network, right. I understood your correctly. It had something that they, I think they have some pretty strict rules on how you do the padding in TLS, which helped to correct that potential problem. But there was a missing check in the uh, that and to verify that that padding was done correctly, so right. it had some uh, gave the opportunity to provide these guesses and be able to to, uh, to do that cryptanalysis. Right, right. Well, so I, I think this one is probably one to watch for a little bit longer. I mean, this came out. There may be other devices, yes. precisely other implementations that may use the same sort of shortcuts and, mm -hmm. and mistakes that this these uh, F5s and A10s use. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not surprising that a load balancer might have this problem because they are designed to optimize performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a correction. Hopefully it doesn't have a, the patch doesn't have any significant performance impact on the devices themselves. But uh, certainly I'm sure it'll help with the, from a security standpoint. But uh, before you can protect against a Poodle attack, you probably should protect your databases from attack, I would say. Right. You know, and uh, taking a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here, um, first thing on the list here is uh, it, 
I think uh, an unusual number of anomalies related to scan probes on port 1434 UDP. Uh, this is associated with Microsoft SQL database, and uh, if you look way back, it's associated with the uh, slammer worm. Mm -hmm. This doesn't look like slam or warm activity, but it certainly is probing on that port. Some of these spikes in activity are actually a uh, research organization that are doing some, you know, perhaps looking to see what the exposure might be associated with these databases. But some of this more recent activity appears to be, uh, first of all, a little more focused and a little more uh, frequent, associated with a number of different servers located around the world uh, in Ukraine. United States, Netherlands, France, for example. There was a uh, vulnerability that was announced by Microsoft, uh, MS-1444, uh, that had to do with elevated privilege vulnerability. And uh, it, again, that was back in August. So uh, perhaps there's uh, a relationship between the two here. I'm not really sure about that. But Is there a reason why it's spiky? What's, do we know what? Uh, it's actually turning on and turning off the activity. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, there's a possibility that scanning across addresses, there were only certain pieces that, that, that hit here, but uh, more than likely it had to do with the uh, started and stopped activity. Um, certainly the, the spikes further to the left are associated with that, hmm. that sort yeah. of behavior. Uh, further to the right, it looks like, you know, they were doing some things more persistently. Speaking of spiky, yeah. <laughs> this next item here is a very similar scan probes on port 7001 TCP. Uh, we're showing 30 days of activity and the addresses that are performing this are in, from China. It was just a couple of addresses that are associated with this activity. Uh, I took a look at some of the other behaviors that they had. First of all, they had behaviors that were consistent in terms of they, they were probably related to each other, uh, but they were both looking at some different ports. Uh, that is scanning other ports for uh, potential vulnerabilities. This is kind of the, the uh, I guess, the uh, vegetable soup of uh, ports here. Um, looking <laughs> at email. Port they weren't using. That's what <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there are certainly cases where it's very, very comprehensive. But this is a case where, if you were to look for vulnerabilities, they were these are probably the ones that you would go after. Uh, ports associated with email, databases, remote access, proxies, and backdoors. So the combination of these really does kind of point to some sort of uh, malicious behavior uh, as the motivation of the activity. And uh, just to give a little bit of idea, this is what happened when I took uh, several of those ports. Some of these ports have a lot of activity all of the time. Uh, so I picked some ports that aren't really all that frequently targeted. 1521 happens to be associated with the Oracle database. 7001, I'm not really sure, perhaps a proxy. I feel Jump. like there's a backdoor or something. A backdoor of some, some piece of like uh, consumer That's a good possibility uh, because the 32764 is associated with the backdoor as well. And then the ones between appear to be associated with perhaps proxy ports. But in any case, you can see that there's a very clear uh, pattern associated with the activity, or maybe it's not so clear, but uh, each color represents a different port and the activity, and basically what's happening is the device is uh, scanning a port, stopping, scanning on another port, stopping, scanning on another port, stopping, and then they take a break in between. They may be doing some other things uh, in between as well. So, uh, well, I have that picture on my refrigerator that my kids drew. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was working with my crayons here. Maybe next time we'll try to get your uh, kids to help out with it. Uh, speaking of backdoor ports, uh, this next item here is scan probes on port 53.413 UDP. Now, we had talked about in actually previous weeks about 53.413 TCP, which was a backdoor port to Netis routers. This was a right. Chinese manufactured router. It's mostly popular in Asia, but it's available in the United States. It's, uh, I think it's just the, uh, the brand name is all that popular, well known. So uh, there aren't that many instances in the United States, but there certainly are in Asia. 
And uh, so, I, you know, I have to think that this activity that we're seeing here is related. And this is actually uh, what we're looking at are the number of source IP addresses that are doing the scanning activity on this particular port. Clearly, it's uh, botnet behavior. The telltale sign that we tend to look for in botnet behavior is this case where at the beginning of the activity, you see zero addresses scanning on this port. And then all of a sudden, we see, in this case, over 1,000 sources doing that scanning activity. Actually, yes, yeah. over 1,000 sources doing that scanning activity. And then as they complete their activity, you see this decay. And ultimately, it, got, it appears that it actually got turned off. And they've gone through, they're working on the third round of this scanning activity at this point. So with now, increasingly more bots, it appears. Yep. With increasingly <coughs> more bots. So uh, the recruiting is perhaps uh, successful, although uh, this isn't looking like it's an exponential increase. Right. Although we also have to keep in mind that as a botnet recruits, it will take off devices for doing other types of attack activity and then keep just a segment of that for doing further recruiting activity and restoring its, uh, its capabilities. So uh, it's something we need to be paying attention to. Now, these kinds of devices, these are home routers. So they're going to be on all the time. They're not going to be running any virus. They're stuck right on the internet. Uh, they are intended to be a barrier to uh, the internet for a lot of organizations or a lot of homes at least. And so uh, it is something to be paying attention to that is uh, really the only way to get rid of this would be to, I think, replace the device. There may be a patch out for this at this point, but um, well, some of these, if so they sure. are home routers, they're only memory resident, and if you reboot the right. box, they but will this is a backdoor that was programmed into it. Oh, it's an intentional <laughs> backdoor. <laughs> this oh. is a backdoor that was from seems the manufacturer. Yeah, it seems to be a theme, right? Right yeah. from uh, pwned, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> pwned off the shelf here. Mm. So, uh, in any case, uh, something to be pay attention to. You might want to test your home your router to see if it has uh, this backdoor associated with it, because you certainly don't want to uh, have that. Uh. Now, as a side note. Uh, we have been uh, seeing some denial of service activity that appears to be associated with Internet of Things devices that may have included uh, some of these devices. Again, the, the backdoor that we're intimately aware of here is that specifically port 5314 TCP and the relationship to UDP is not entirely clear. But uh, John, you had done some uh, a little bit of investigation to that and saw that at least there was a large proportion of some of the attacking addresses that we saw in a particular case. Yeah, in a recent case, there was definitely a lot of these home routers or embedded Internet of Things devices that mm -hmm. appeared to be the attack sources. Right. Now, why that is, well, I mean, we know that there's a lot of these, you know, way back when there was those security camera DVR systems mm -hmm. that there was this OEM manufacturer that whatever had a vulnerability on lots of different vendors. And um, we saw tons of these devices got recruited and scooped up into a big botnet. The thing about a lot of these edge devices and the home is that the user might not even be aware because they're on the inside of mm -hmm. their network. They got this device that's really acting as their gateway and right. they might not really have good visibility into what it's doing out to the rest Absolutely of the internet true. other than, hey, you know, my internet's slow today, you know? Right. And well, they're not um, supposed to do it because they're all right. internet of things, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of different devices that have vulnerabilities in that regard and, you know, as you can see, people are searching for them to see if they can recruit them. Absolutely. And just uh, to take a look at the geographic mapping of those sources that were doing the scanning activity, it's kind of consistent with what we expect with that Netis. As I said, popular in Asia, also uh, more popular in Europe in comparison to the United States. Uh, you certainly see uh, some reasonable density in India as well. And uh, so it yellow, yellow means worse. 
Yellow means yellow really is uh, yellow is denser. Yes, yeah. there's more yeah. uh, devices concentrated in that particular space, and this represents a, roughly 2,000 uh, devices ad uh, mapped onto here. Next item here is scan probes on port 135 TCP. This is the uh, endpoint mapper associated with Microsoft. If we go back way back when, it was associated with the Microsoft Blaster Worm. Now we see some, uh, just basically a group of sources in China. Actually, they're Chinese registered addresses, but actually appears to be hosted in the United States. They're doing this probing activity. It's pretty aggressive. Uh, and it's been fairly consistent over the last couple of weeks here. We're showing 60 days of data. Uh, this actually goes back to the uh, near the beginning of November. So we're going into the second month of this probing activity. And we did another set of this uh, earlier in the summer that Stanton reported did. on. Yeah. And uh, it looked like it, basically it was... They were uh, trying just a certain user ID and password right. trying to, you know, whatever, connect. And I looked at recent activity, but I couldn't find any completed sessions. So I didn't mm -hmm. really see any, you know... I didn't have any, I didn't see the same thing, right. but I didn't get a chance to look deeply yet. So, very curious that this activity is continuing on and has, um, it's very aggressive. You know, we're showing about 400 million uh, probes per hour associated with this. And as we go later, we're gonna take a quick look at the uh, daily reconnaissance index and it's clearly visible in that activity as well. Taking a look at the top 10 most probe ports. Uh, this is actually data from the uh, from December 8th here, and uh, we just talked about port 135 TCP, followed by 8080 TCP. We talked about some probing associated with that, followed by 22 and 23 TCP, that's uh, SSH and Telnet respectively. Generally, brute force password guessing attacks, followed by port 53 UDP, either looking for DNS servers for uh, open DNS resolvers mm -hmm. for uh, reflection attacks uh, or perhaps related activity there. Uh, we talked about Microsoft SQL database on port 1434 UDP, uh, 1433 TCP, that's generally uh, password guessing activity as well, followed by 3389, that's uh, remote desktop protocol. Again, brute force password guessing is, uh, is generally the theme there. That's followed by port 445 TCP, generally associated with uh, latent config or worms. Last time uh, we looked at uh, 445 in detail, we certainly are seeing uh, uh, basically a decrease in the activity overall over the past year or so. I have a question about when you say probe versus brute force attacks. So when I say when I when I hear brute force oh, attack, that's point. really an attack, not yes. not checking to see if I could attack it. Uh, actually, a good uh, good yeah. point for clarification. What we're really reporting here are the probes, that is, to identify the I open see. ports. Yeah. And then through further investigation, usually the motivation translates into see, it's yeah. a, an attempt to do a brute force password guess against device. That is, they didn't have any preconceived notion about what right. they were going to connect to. And so they have a repertoire of passwords that they use, default passwords, and then, uh, you know, popular passwords, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I see. So a very good point. Uh, and then that's followed by port 443, and uh, that's uh, generally associated with uh, looking for vulnerable web servers or, again, could be uh, password guessing as well. Next item is uh, actually investigating a little bit further. The most changed in this report it was associated with port 8080 TCP. Uh, that's scan probes on port 8080 TCP. And then uh, looking further, we see sources in China, Portugal, Germany, Hong Kong, Jap Japan, and France. Not a large number of sources that are doing this, but there certainly is an up ramp in that activity. And so there's uh, perhaps some motivation. Uh, oftentimes, this is looking for uh, proxies for anonymizing uh, other sorts of activities. Yeah, it's proxies, Tomcat, Tomcat on there. You keep reminding always, me that, John, yeah, Wednesdays, Tomcat. I'm going to remember. Because uh, we've seen lots of activity against Tomcat. Um, mm -hmm. 
plus there's a lot of these embedded other Internet of Things devices that have their administrative port on port 8080 right. for like administering your whatever your home router and whatnot, which shouldn't be exposed to the Internet, but there are quite a few that are. Absolutely. Good point. Uh, top 10 most sources doing the probing. So regardless of how many probes you see, we're identifying the sources here. And then uh, well at the top of the list is port 23 TCP. That's been in that place for some time now. Again, it's this Internet of Things where they have Telnet exposed to the Internet, perhaps a default password. Oftentimes the users don't even know that Telnet's offered to the Internet on these uh, devices and they're free for the exploit. Followed by port 445 TCP, again, configure activity. We have a couple here. Uh, 6881 UDP and 6881 TCP. Is that a BitTorrent? It's a BitTorrent. That's what I, yeah. I anticipated there. Followed by uh, 27015 UDP, 8080 TCP we talked about. And uh, we have obviously some ICMP activity, oftentimes backscatter associated with denial service attacks or uh, associated with the reconnaissance activity as well. You said well. port 23 has been on there for a long time as a number one. Oh, there. absolutely. Yes. And, uh, it's just sad, right? And yeah. it's sad that Telnet's exposed and they know. And again, a lot of Internet of Things devices, home routers, a lot of them have Telnet instead of SSH open mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Why? I, I don't know who That's would design a device. I wonder if anybody's had, actually had some discussion about just removing Telnet from a Linux distribution. Because, uh, for, you know, yeah, for. Uh, are there really, yeah. is there really need to have Telnet? For Internet of Things companies that are using Linux to do yeah. their thing, you don't get Telnet. Well, I think that's really what needs to happen. <laughs> that is, if you look at the, uh, you know, most of these Internet of Things devices are built using a development kit for the embedded yeah. processor, yeah. the MIPS processor, for example. And the uh, distribution of that really needs to be kind of locked down yeah. as a starting point. Agreed, yeah. uh, it shouldn't be really just a right up, you know, pull right off the shelf type uh, distribution. I think that would really help the industry and perhaps to include as a part of that, if it's, it's designed as an embedded product toolkit to actually have some things for default password management rather than have a default password be able to tie it to something yeah. in the hardware uh, along those lines. I'm just saying it's 2014 and we're still talking about this issue that yes. I talked about in the 90s. Okay? Yeah, so, absolutely. You know. I think and a lot of the reason they do that though is because uh, the Windows platform, they need to ship an SSH client. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, they have sure. Telnet. So, like from a consumer standpoint, if I'm gonna, if I'm, you know, your mom or whatever, and you're, <laughs> yeah. and, and she's trying to administer her, her device, not that she probably would do this, yeah. trying to find like Putty or some SSH client in order to get into this device, it's not something that most people are gonna do. But everybody has Telnet. So my um, mother-in-law is gonna be very flattered that you think she can throw a Putty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think that might be some motivation on why they do it. I don't agree yeah, with no, that. That's true. Yeah. But I bet you if Windows or Microsoft starts shipping an SSH, a simple SSH client. So there are two things that really have to happen here. Right. You have to I think it would know, be pull more back well on adopted. the telnet and push the push an SSH toward Microsoft. So right. Perhaps we can talk with them about it. Sure, I'll give them a call. Okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, next item here is uh, the daily reconnaissance in index. I just wanted to uh, sort of show the effect of that uh, port 35 scanning activity. As you can see, we talked about that port 135 scanning activity that was taking place back in June. Uh, it's pretty apparent on this, uh, on this graph. And we see, again, that uh, resurgence of the activity is taking place now. So that really has uh, driven the reconnaissance index up. Uh, but it appears that that might be a somewhat targeted activity, but using a broad sweeping method to, uh, to get there. So Rick, before we end the show here, you'd mentioned Unit 42, and you told us you were going to tell us. Yeah. 
Oh, so, that got named. <laughs> all right, so we got a bunch of geeks in the room, right? You guys know what 42 is if you're a sci-fi geek? Yep, yes? Right, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Universe and everything. Right? Yeah. Say that again? Meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Exactly. Like that? Yeah. To life. The answer to yeah. life. Okay. Right, so when, I, uh, when they hired me to build the team, okay, I was writing all the documents about how, what kind of skill sets do you need, what kind of equipment do we need, who's going to work for whom. Uh, and I got tired of writing Palo Alto Network's Threat Intelligence team all the documents. So as a joke to myself, because I'm a sci-fi geek, I started calling it just Unit 42. Well, the uh, executive vice president for PR and uh, communications, he saw it also a sci-fi geek. So, oh, no, no, <laughs> we're calling it Unit 42 from now on. So that is why our official intelligence team yeah. is called Unit 42. You know, Matt was making fun of me because I, I saw you talk about this actually at at and uh, cybersecurity yeah. conference, and you described this, and uh, Matt and I were talking. I hadn't read that book, and so I went off and read it afterwards. See, and yeah. <laughs> now you know, right? And so now I know. So I, I guess I've finally become a geek. After There's so much here. popular culture about uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the number 42 that if you put in the answer to life, universe, and everything in the Google bar, mm -hmm. right? You get a calculator with 42 as the answer, <laughs> right? And the latest uh, space station mission is mission 42. And all of those folks dressed up as Hitchhiker's Guide as characters, right? So uh, yes, it's a thing that you should be aware of. <laughs> <laughs> all right, very good. All right, thank you for that, Rick. And uh, so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. It's att.com slash ThreatTrack. Uh, it's also available on YouTube and iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And uh, Rick, you'd mentioned the, uh, you'd mentioned the, uh, the Canon. Right. Uh, do, you, do you have a uh, contact information associated with that? Uh, yes, the URL should show up somewhere in the slides somewhere okay. because it's really long and I don't remember <laughs> what it is. But yes, okay. please we'll, go to the we'll website. We'll go that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, so I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you very thanks much. Very much very much, Rick. Thanks, uh, guys. I appreciate been, uh, it. Thanks for coming. Very much a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.